Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Life doesn't come with a user manual. So when life stops working for you, it's pretty normal to feel stuck. Imagine somebody who spent, oh, say, 25 years being really distracted overwhelmed by clutter, and fluctuating between being really into obscure ancient history and not being able to find the motivation to do the dishes. That person is me, and apparently, if there were a user manual to life, it might have told me that I have ADHD and should talk to my doctor about that. Therapists are about as close to a manual as we can get. Folks who are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions and learn coping skills. 
BetterHelp has connected millions of people with licensed, registered therapists for convenient and secure online therapy. It's convenient and 100% accessible online. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and not even endless googling of therapist near me. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with an appropriate therapist. And if it doesn't click, BetterHelp makes it easy to switch providers. Everyone deserves to feel their best, so get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com persia. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash persia. Welcome, everyone, to the History of Persia, Episode 2, Indo-Iranians. Last time, we explored the world the Persians would inherit, following major powers in the region. Today, I'll bring the Persians themselves up to speed as we follow it how exactly the tribes that became Persians actually ended up in Persia. You'll remember the part of the last episode where we discussed the area in modern Iran that would eventually become the Persian home province of Pars. It was inhabited by the Elamites, a culture that is only partially understood, but is known to have agitated against Assyria until it was crushed by the king Ashurbanipal. To figure out how we went from Elam to Persia, we should first turn to linguistics. It may seem like an odd place to start studying history, but if any of you are familiar with the phrase Proto-Indo-European, you can probably see where I'm going with this. Proto-Indo-European refers to an ancient language which is the common ancestor of many languages from India to Europe, including English. It is also commonly used to refer to the people who spoke that language. The idea that so many languages across a diverse space were all related was first pioneered in the 1780s by a British philologist in India, and reconstructing Proto-Indo-European and its early descendants dominated 19th century linguistics. Those efforts have largely been successful, with thousands of words having been reconstructed based on words of existing languages, giving us a good sense of Proto-Indo-European, Proto-Germanic, and Proto-Indo-Iranian, amongst others. Exactly when, where, and who the Proto-Indo-Europeans were is still something of a mystery. There is no written record associated with them, and all of the linguistic work on the language is done by working backward from modern and historical languages that we do have sources for. As such, we don't know what they would have been called by themselves or by their neighbors to identify them if they are mentioned in any ancient writing. The question of when is probably the question with the most precise answer, and I use precise very loosely here. Scholars have generally settled on 4500 BC to 2500 BC as the probable time frame for Proto-Indo-European. This is based on predictable changes in language, and when the first and last historical branches of the Indo-European family tree must have split off. 4500 is the earliest date that still makes sense in regard to the Anatolian language family. Though no Anatolian languages are spoken today, this category includes the language of the Hittites, who I mentioned briefly in the last episode, and several other languages spoken in Anatolia prior to the conquest of Alexander the Great in the 4th century BC. The later date of 2500 is much more relevant to us, though. That is the time when linguists have identified the last plausible point for the youngest branches, Italo-Celtic and Indo-Iranian, to have existed as their own languages, at which point Proto-Indo-European would have completely broken up into different languages. 
Italo-Celtic refers to the common linguistic ancestor of the Italic languages, including Latin and all of its Romance language descendants, and the Celtic languages, such as Welsh and Irish, most of which died out after the conquest by Latin-speaking Romans and Germanic tribes. Indo-Iranian is the ancestral language of many northern Indian languages, and the Iranian languages, including those that would be spoken in Persia at the time of the Persian Empire, but also their modern descendants like Farsi and Kurdish dialects. Where and who are much more interconnected questions, because we do not have any written sources to tell us, and connecting reconstructed words to archaeology in lieu of writing is impossible, we have to know where they might have lived before suggesting a historical culture to associate with Proto-Indo-European. Once upon a time, who the Proto-Indo-Europeans were was actually less of a question. 19th and early 20th century scholars developed the idea of a warrior race who invaded and conquered Europe, Iran, and India. This was based mostly on European ideas of conquering ancestors and the plethora of words about warfare with common Indo-European roots across many languages. But as modern scholarship has yielded exactly no evidence for a massive militant invasion of any of those territories at the right time, and it has found evidence for a gradual spread of different groups across different waves of migration, the earlier idea of an invasion has mostly died off. However, that leaves us no closer to figuring out who the Proto-Indo-Europeans actually were. Archaeology has uncovered and cataloged many prehistoric cultures in Europe and Asia since the theory of Proto-Indo-European language was first put forward, and everywhere from Germany to the Himalayas to Atlantis has been suggested as the possible Indo-European homeland. Some theories have gained a little more prominence than others. At various points, India, Armenia, and Anatolia have all been suggested as better candidates than Atlantis each drawing on a different set of evidence, but none of them prevailing based on all existing archaeological and linguistic evidence. Instead, modern scholarship has settled on the Eurasian steppe as the most likely point of origin. How linguists arrived at that conclusion is just fascinating to me. In reconstructing Proto-Indo-European, they found that certain words across many descendant languages had to do with plants, animals, and their byproducts, all sharing common roots. Words for certain types of trees, like oak, livestock, like horses, sheep, and goats, and other parts of the environment, like bees and honey, limit the geographical range that we can actually look at in the established 4500 to 2500 BC time period, because they must have lived somewhere with all of those things. Archaeology limits us further. Historically, languages spread with culture to some degree, and given how ridiculously successful those Indo-European languages were at spreading, we should expect to see archaeological evidence of material culture or cultural influences that spread with them. One of the only places in the world that meets all of those criteria is the Pontic-Caspian Steppe, the open and arid grassland that stretches between the Black and Caspian Seas in modern Ukraine and Russia. Once again, the relevant maps will be posted on the website. The cultural group that appears in the right region at the right time is the Yamnaya culture, or the Yamnaya horizon to researchers who feel that culture may be too specific of a word for a group of people whose actual behavior and relationships can't be clearly identified. However, we can identify many things. Between the archaeological evidence for the Yamnaya culture and the linguistic evidence for the Proto-Indo-European language, we can deduce that they were nomadic or pastoralist herders of cattle, sheep, and goats. Genetic testing shows that their sheep were some of the first in the world with substantial enough wool to actually make textiles. 
They built a few small fortifications on hills around which they had some modest agriculture. They buried their dead in man-made hills called Kurgans, which fortunately for us have insulated the remains and the possessions buried in them for modern archaeology. The possessions include ceramic pottery, animals, copper, silver, gold, and bronze ornaments and tools, as well as stone tools and weapons. They were some of the first, or maybe possibly the first, to make use of wheeled carts and domesticated horses. It was almost certainly in this part of the world that horses were first domesticated and spread from there to other places. The same is possibly true of wheeled vehicles, at least for this region of the world. Meanwhile, many of their metal goods seem to have come from outside of the steppe, primarily the Bronze Age kingdoms and empires of the Near East, which I mentioned at the beginning of the last episode. They were the periphery of that Bronze Age trading network that collapsed during the Bronze Age collapse, but they were engaged with it nonetheless. So this leaves us with a fairly detailed picture of the Proto-Indo-European, or Yemnaya if you prefer, people. They herded livestock as they traveled from place to place with their goods in wheeled carts, either riding horses or using them as pack animals. They had spiritual rituals, particularly surrounding death and their burial in Kurgans. They used tools made of both metal and stone, but had some idea of metalworking with softer precious metals, and they traded, and probably by extension fought, with other cultures around them. Genetic testing can even tell us that they usually had brown eyes, dark hair, and a slightly darker complexion than most modern Europeans. There is much more that can be said about the Proto-Indo-Europeans themselves, but we have to follow the branch that would split off and eventually settle in Iran. If you are still curious about the Indo-European languages and how they spread into Europe, I highly recommend the first 15 or so episodes of The History of English podcast by Kevin Stroud. After that point, he narrows his focus to the Germanic languages and then specifically to English. If that interests you, I do also recommend the whole show. If you prefer to read, my primary source of information for this section of the episode was The Horse, the Wheel, and Language by David Anthony. But moving on, we must ask, why did they move? The Proto-Indo-Europeans existed comfortably on the Pontic-Caspian steppe for almost a millennium or more. Some scholars have suggested that environmental change made it harder to feed their herds in the region. Others have suggested that they were just migrating along the trade routes to move into more advantageous locations. Regardless of the specific cause, something was pushing some people to move both east and west. While those that went west were busy becoming the future cultures of Europe, we will follow the group that migrated eastward. Around 2500 BCE, there is evidence for an eastward migration of the Yamnaya culture and by around 2100, we refer to the Andronovo horizon. Once again, the word horizon is used to describe a broad material culture over different systems of belief and behavior. Unlike the Yemnaya, however, we can actually identify some of the subcultures relevant to our story here. First came the Sintashta culture, occupying the steppe to the northeast of the Caspian Sea. They mixed with other groups on their way east and absorbed some of their material culture while also innovating new activities. The Sintashta culture is associated with extravagant sacrifices and Kurgan burials, with a myriad of grave goods in the form of spearheads, arrowheads, chisels, axes, and early forms of chariots. In fact, the Sintashta culture is theorized as the possible inventors of the war chariot. 
They seem to have remained semi-nomadic pastoralists with their herds, but unlike the Yamnaya, the Sintashta are noted for mining and working their own copper in order to create bronze on an almost industrial scale at some of their more permanent settlements. They traded their metalwork south to Elamite Iran and Mesopotamia, which had practically endless demands for bronze works, especially weapons. However, it would seem that the metalworks and weapons found in Sintashta graves were not only for export and display. There is significant evidence for warfare and competition between different Sintashta groups, possibly driven by disputes over pasture territory. In addition to a number of weapons found in Sintashta Kurgans, they developed chariots, which really only had one purpose. They also built fortifications, which obviously means they were fortifying themselves against something. And inside those Kurgan burials, archaeologists have found the remains of people who died violent deaths, with injuries that actually match up to the types of weapons produced by their own culture. Unfortunately, without a written record, we can only guess to what their wars looked like. The Sintashta culture eventually spread east and south and developed into the Andronovo Horizon, which would last in some places until 900 BC. They occupied a vast swath of the steppe stretching eastward from the coast of the Caspian Sea. The culture stayed relatively consistent, but over a thousand years and a huge area, variations did develop. Some placed more importance on horses, others on cattle, some added pigs and camels to the horses, sheep, and goats that they were already herding. Bronze and copper working became even more common and more complex. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch, and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors. And Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. They continued to trade with the empires of the Near East prior to the Bronze Age collapse, and their building techniques became more complex as well, incorporating stone and wood structures into the chambers beneath the Kurgans and into a few of their fortifications. Linguistically, the Proto-Indo-European group that moved east are called Indo-Iranians, and are said to have spoken a Proto-Indo-Iranian language. As I mentioned earlier, this was the linguistic ancestor of the Iranian and Northern Indian languages. Once again, 
linguistics can associate a place and the corresponding material culture with a long-dead language by working backwards from the languages that still exist. In this case, the path that researchers took was a little more direct than taking evidence from dozens of languages to recreate Proto-Indo-European. Proto-Indo-Iranian was the language spoken just before two branches of the Indo-Iranian people became literate. Linguists work backwards from two ancient written sources to investigate the Indo-Iranian language. The older branch is Sanskrit, an ancient language used in northern India which was written down in the form of the Vedas, most notably the Rig Veda, ancient Hindu religious texts containing stories, prayers, and songs. The Vedas were first written down sometime in the 2nd millennium BC, possibly later, but the oral tradition that spawned them is thought to be as old as 1900 BC, firmly contemporary with the Indo-Iranians. The second branch is another, slightly younger religious text called the Gathas. The Gathas are part of a much larger collection of texts called the Avesta, which is the primary holy book for Zoroastrianism, a religion which we will discuss in much more detail further down the line. The Gathas are the oldest part of the Avesta, written in a language called Old Avestan. The hymns that eventually became the Gothas are also thought by linguists to have developed in the mid-2nd millennium BC, but not to have been written down until after the Rig Veda. To linguists, Sanskrit and Avestan are clearly closely related languages, meaning that their common Proto-Indo-Iranian parent language would have most likely existed not long before either example developed. Both texts have been linked back to the Andronovo and Sintashta steppe cultures based on timing and some of the elements described in each text. These include discussion of livestock and herding activities more in line with a pastoral steppe existence than that of cultures in Iran or India, as well as description of funeral rites that some scholars have suggested may refer back to the Kurgan burial tradition, once again, something not present in Iran and India at the same time. So now we have the Indo-Iranians whose religious traditions eventually ended up in Iran and India, living well to the north of either location as the Andronovo cultures on the steppe in the mid-2nd millennium BC. Again, our story has to follow migration. But before we advance the story any further, I have to make a short digression that just doesn't fit in anywhere else in this episode. If you listen to the introductory episode, you'll have heard part of this already. I mentioned before that the first research on Indo-European and Indo-Iranian languages was done in the 18th and 19th centuries. However, linguists did not usually refer to them using that terminology back then. Earlier scholars called the linguistic and cultural ancestors of modern European, Indian, and Iranian languages the Aryans. The word Aryan came from the name the authors of the Avesta and the Vedas used to describe themselves, and, in fact, is the word that eventually morphed into Iran and Iranian. Unfortunately, given the pseudoscience of race and how it was used to promote white supremacy in the 19th and 20th centuries, the word Aryan became corrupted. In certain circles, including the German Nazi party, it became associated with a kind of super race that the Nazis claimed were Germans. Of course, we know now that they were so horrifyingly wrong, but their misuse of the word Aryan and the fact that it wasn't really accurate to the original Indo-Europeans to begin with pushed Aryan out of popular use. But moving on, we follow the real Aryans further along their journey to the country that would eventually share their name. Early research on when the Indo-Iranians began moving into India and Iran worked off of when the Rig Veda was most likely developed, but that can only be a rough estimate. However, 20th century research uncovered Vedic terminology dating to around 1500 BC 
in a very unlikely place. The kingdom of Mitanni, a Bronze Age kingdom, in southeastern Anatolia and northern Syria, which bordered the Hittites and the old Assyrian Empire. Several Mitanni gods, royal names, and additional terminology, especially that relating to horses, is almost identical to the language of the Rigveda. The conclusion that most scholars have settled on is that, not too long before 1500 BC, a migrating group of Indo-Iranians conquered Mitanni and became the ruling class in the kingdom, so that it was their gods and their names that appear on the royal inscriptions. They would have brought the horse-dependent culture of the steppe with them, and so their language was preserved in that arena as well. The Indo-Iranian language in Mitanni is so close to the Rig Veda that it supports a circa 1500 departure date for another Indo-Iranian branch as well. It is believed that the Mitannian group went south and west around the southern coast of the Caspian Sea, while another group either split off from the Mitanni group or left around the same time, going south and east across the Hindu Kush mountains and into the modern Indian subcontinent, where they gradually spread out and mixed with the local populations over the centuries, taking the traditions of the Rig Veda with them. Finally, though, another migration took place sometime before 800 BCE, likely about one or two hundred years earlier. These were the Iranians. Some went southward from the steppe and into the Zagros Mountains and the Iranian Plateau. Others are believed to have turned west, where they became the early Scythians, who would harry Greece and the Near East for the following centuries, and the Sumerians, who assaulted Urartu, as mentioned in the last episode, all continuing to live on the steppe for the foreseeable future. The migration must have occurred prior to 800, because by then, the Medes, Persians, and other historical Iranian tribes had already begun to appear in Assyrian and Elamite records. Other early Iranians stayed in the central steppe, where they eventually developed into the many other steppe tribes that would harass the settled societies of the classical period. And it is now that the story of the Persians' ancestors intersects fully with our story from last time. Not long after entering the Zagros Mountains, the Iranian tribes came under the subjugation of the Assyrian Empire, and were forced to pay tribute to the Assyrians. The Persians, or at least it appears to be them, were listed as a tribe in the Zagros in 836 on an Assyrian tribute list. Through similar tribute lists, we can follow the Persian migration through the Zagros. In 836, they are called Parsuwa, but already in 820, a people called the Parush are placed at the southern end of the Zagros Mountains. However, at this point, the Persians were not the most significant Iranian tribe or kingdom. That honor goes to a group of people called the Medes. Like the Persians, the Medes were an Iranian group that had come from the second southward migration out of the steppe. They settled primarily on the Zagros as their new homeland by the 8th century BC, and were developing into their own kingdom with centralized power and governance by the early 7th century. A version of how the kingdom of Media came to be is given to us, but it brings us to another digression that I will have to make frequently on this show. Our sources are not always reliable, and the two primary sources for the early history of the Median kingdom are the Babylonian Chronicle and the history by Herodotus. The former was the simple history patroned by the Babylonian kings. The latter is famous for being the first proper history recounting the past by consulting primary and secondary sources. Herodotus was a Greek historian who moved throughout the Greek world during his life, but originated in Halicarnassus, an Ionian Greek city ruled by Persia during the historian's life. Unfortunately, Herodotus also took great liberties that we will be dealing with for the first few centuries of our narrative. It was probably intended to be performed and presented orally, 
and Herodotus embellished and filled in the details he needed to create a compelling story. So I will share a version of Herodotus's story, reconciled with the Median kings mentioned in the Babylonian Chronicle and other Near Eastern sources, along with some commentary about the details that Herodotus seems to have messed up a little bit. Sometime around 700 BC, a Median chieftain in the Zagros, called Deiokes, managed to bring different Median tribes in the region under his personal control. Herodotus tells us that he had been used as a neutral judge who mediated disputes, but he got fed up with his feuding tribesmen and quit, causing the territory to fall into anarchy. In order to save themselves, Herodotus says that the Medes chose Deiokes as their new king. More than likely, he did plenty of his own warring to bring Media under his control, and Herodotus was using the idea of a just and elected king as a literary device. Deiokes is credited with forming a royal bodyguard and either expanding or founding a new capital at the city of Ekbadana, roughly underneath of modern Hamadan, Iran. Given the supposed dates for his reign, which Herodotus indicates would have ended about 647 BCE, Deiokes would have almost immediately become a vassal of the rapidly expanding Assyrian Empire, and the Assyrian annals actually list him as one of the chieftains from the Zagros deported during their conquests. Herodotus tells us that Deiokes was succeeded by his son Priortes, possibly the same leader called Kashtaratu in Assyrian records. The new king is credited with expanding the Median kingdom and subjugating the surrounding Iranian tribes, including possibly the Persians. It's a little bit unclear given our scant sources. He was also the Median king who would have put the final nail in the coffin for Elam. Last time we saw how Ashurbanipal, sick and tired of the Elamites aiding Babylonian rebels, led the Assyrian army all the way to the Elamite capital at Susa, sacked the city, and crushed Elam out of the historical record. That was only a partial truth. Sacking one city doesn't undo an entire civilization overnight, but it seems to have done enough damage to Elam that it was never able to become powerful enough to appear in Assyrian records ever again, or really any other record outside of Elam itself. The records from inside Elam are not very clear either. There are a handful of royal stella that could be from this time period, or from rebels in the Persian period, or from earlier kings not recorded by the Assyrian records, but that last one's at least a little less likely. A plausible explanation is that the various factions within Elam fought for dominance in the intervening years, as civil wars often caused disruption in ancient record-keeping. The growing Median kingdom, with a network of Iranian vassals at their back, were expanding just as quickly, and seemed to have taken advantage of the void in power and conquered Elam. When exactly this happened is not entirely clear, just that it happened sometime after Ashurbanipal sacked Susa in the 640s, and it was obviously before Freyortes' own death. A southern part of the newly acquired territory, around an ancient city called Anshan, had apparently been taken a generation earlier by members of another Iranian tribe, which you might have heard of. Once again, this is the Persians. The precise nature of their relationship to the Medes is kind of unclear, but the modern consensus seems to be that they were turned into vassals with some sort of autonomy within their own territory. And if the title of the show hasn't tipped you off, we will be revisiting the Persians of Anshan. Herodotus assigns Freortes a 22-year reign before rebelling against the Assyrians and dying in battle, which modern scholarship places around 625. Following the death of Freortes, there is a gap in the history of the Medes. 
Herodotus asserts that the Medes were ruled by Scythian invaders from the steppe under a king called Madios. However, there is no evidence for a Scythian invasion of Media in the late 600s, or for their supposed king. Instead, modern scholars suggest that this gap was filled either by an unknown Median ruler, or simply by the next king listed in Herodotus and the Babylonian Chronicle, Syaxeres. Syaxeres, called Uvakstra by the Persians, was reportedly the son of Freortes, and Herodotus describes him as killing the Scythian leadership. Now, as we have no evidence for those Syrians or any particular evidence for Freortes, how Syaxeres really became king of the Medes is a bit of a historical mystery, but not a particularly important one to this narrative. What is important is what he would do as king. Around 616 BC, the Median king was contacted with a proposal from his Babylonian counterpart. King Nabopolassar of Babylon requested Syaxeres as an ally in a bold plan. They were to invade the Assyrian Empire and conquer its vast territory, and this is where the stories of the early Iron Age Near East and the early Iranian tribes intersect. And next time we will follow the Medes and Babylonians as they crush the Assyrians and spread their own empires westward across the ancient world. Until then, you can find more information about the show and the maps for this episode at historyofpersiapodcast.wordpress.com. New episodes will also be available there or wherever it is you get your favorite podcasts. If there is somewhere that you don't see the show, feel free to let me know and I'll see what I can do. You can contact me with suggestions or feedback either on the website or at historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you enjoyed the show today and you're excited for what comes next, tell a friend, share on social media, and leave a review on iTunes to get the word out. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. 
Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.